Good morning, HCC. This is the this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Our scripture reading this morning is found in your blue pew Bibles on page 398. We are in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Um, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, so if you open to Psalms, then go to the left to page 398 for Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Please rise in honor of reading the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that has just been read, and now we are praying for your help, for your Holy Spirit's illuminating power to understand this word and to respond appropriately with faith and repentance. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, this morning we are kickstarting a new sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it's going to take us all the way to May, and we are calling this series Rebuilding the Ruins. As many of you might already know, the, the book is about the story of rebuilding the ruined walls of Jerusalem after God's people have returned from exile, from the, from the Babylonian exile. 
It's named after an Israelite who held a very high and important position within the royal court of the king of Persia. Nehemiah is his name, and he's commissioned by the king to complete the restoration pro- uh, project for Jerusalem that has, uh, at this point, lasted for a number of years, and he is to do it by rebuilding the city walls and gates. Now, that's, that's pretty much what people know about the book of Nehemiah. They know it's about rebuilding, rebuilding walls, uh, restoring gates. It's about strong leadership. It's about, it's about perseverance, and so it's no wonder why many churches turn to Nehemiah when they want to talk about building projects, capital campaigns. And you're probably thinking, wait, 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 is that what's going on here? Is, is this why we're in Nehemiah? Because we've got this building project going on this year, you know, with the land and the building next door? Yes and no. Uh, yes, the, the thought did cross my mind because... We joked about this on staff, you know, Henry and Stanley can confirm that. We, we, we joked about, you know, last year during the whole pledge campaign, we're like, oh, man, we better get in Nehemiah soon, better get things moving. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's just something, you know, it's so easy to joke about because it's become such a cliche. It's just assumed that you're only ever going to hear Nehemiah from the pulpit when the church is ready to push some kind of building project. So, Yes. We intentionally are preaching through Nehemiah this year of all years. But we're doing it in order to show that a church with a building project going on can still preach Nehemiah faithfully. It can be done without treating Scripture as merely this instrumental means to promote our own agendas. We can preach this book while resisting the urge to treat it as merely this tool to serve our own desired outcomes. Because ultimately, Nehemiah is not just about rebuilding walls and gates. Now, don't get me wrong. The physical structures are important in this story. But on a grander scale, they are symbolic of something far more significant that was destroyed by the exile. The rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls and gates was one of the final steps and the overall rebuilding of Israel's ruined identity as the covenant people of God, and the restoring of its ruined mission as God's representatives on this earth. That, my friends, is what this book is ultimately about. It's about rebuilding the identity and the mission of God's people. That's the main point of Nehemiah. So when we talk about rebuilding the ruins, we're implying Really, that all of us can find ourselves in this story. Because just like the Old Testament people of God, we all are guilty of sin and rebellion. We have all ruined our identity as creatures made in God's image. And all of us have failed in our mission to reflect his glory, to rule well over his creation. We've all fallen short of who we were created to be. And what we were created to do. We've all ruined our identity and our mission. We are by nature now sinners who are living for ourselves. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. So there is a renovation process that that needs to go on. 
or that is currently going on inside each and every single one of us. Like the Israelites and the Amiah, we are in desperate need of God to move in mighty ways to redeem us and to rebuild us, to make us into the kind of people that do reflect his glory, that do represent him well before the nations. That's what's needed for all of us. So church, this year's building project doesn't start next door. It starts in our hearts and in our lives. And what we learn from this morning's text, from Nehemiah chapter 1, is that any effort to rebuild the ruins is going to have to start with prayer. Prayer comes first. Desperate prayer is needed. So let's take a look at chapter 1, and we're going to see the priority of prayer in this book. And I've broken this section down into, into four parts for us in this message. You want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. First, we'll discuss the presenting problem. Next, we're going to consider the persistent prayer. Third, the penitential prayer. And fourth, the promise-based prayer. So that's where we're going. Uh, let's begin by considering the book's presenting problem, kind of giving you an overview for all of the, the subsequent messages in Nehemiah. Now, the presenting problem, we've already said, has to do with ruined walls and gates in post-exilic Jerusalem. Now, because Nehemiah is a narrative book, uh, so much of its historical background just goes, un- uh, goes assumed here, and it just jumps right into chapter 1, right into the story. And so I think it would benefit us to, to slow down a bit and to consider the historical context. Now, Pastor Henry already last week mentioned, as he preached from Ezra chapter 1, he mentioned that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were written originally as one continuous piece of ancient literature. Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, it's just one book. It wasn't until much later on that it became separated into two. And so taken together, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of of the, the return of God's chosen people back to God's chosen place to recover their chosen mission on this earth. Now, this overall plan, this overall story takes place in Ezra and Nehemiah in three major stages. The first stage focuses on the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and that's going to be found for you in Ezra's chapters 1 through 6. That's where the Lord moves Cyrus, the king of Persia, to authorize a rebuilding project under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, who is a descendant of King David and an ancestor of our Lord Jesus. And then the second stage takes place years later under the reign of another Persian king named Artaxerxes. And this stage is referenced for us in Ezra's chapter 7 to the very end, chapter 10. And that focuses on the recovery of God's law. And that's taking place under the leadership of Ezra, who is a Levitical priest and scribe. Now, again, as we said, being one book, what that means is that Ezra 10, the last chapter in Ezra, transitions directly into Nehemiah chapter 1. And so when we're told here in verse 1 that this third stage of the story that's focused on the rebuilding of walls and gates, that it was initiated, quote, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, that should be understood 
as referring to the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Now, notice with me how chapter 1 is written from a first-person perspective. And so Nehemiah here is basically writing his own memoir. He was uh, an Israelite, as we mentioned, providentially placed in a position of great influence. Verse 11 tells us that he was the cupbearer to the king. You have to understand that in ancient times, the cupbearer was an official who would always taste the king's wine first in order to prevent any attempted assassination by poisoning. He was also in charge of guarding the royal chambers while the king slept. And so this means this cupbearer was constantly putting his life on the line in order to protect the king, which, of course, made him the most trusted of all the officials in the royal court. Well, verses 1 to 3 recount an instance when the cupbearer, Nehemiah, he has his brother returning from a trip to Jerusalem, and he brings a report regarding the state of the city and the condition of the returnees that are currently residing there. Look again at verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, upon hearing these words, we're told that Nehemiah sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, I know some have wondered why this news would have shocked them. I mean, shouldn't it be for all exiles a well-known fact that Jerusalem's walls and gates were, were destroyed? Well, yes, of course. He, he's aware that they were destroyed when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem all those years prior. But what likely surprised them with this report is the lack of progress and the overall rebuild of the city. You see, back in the book of Ezra, in Ezra 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, it recounts there an instance in Artaxerxes' reign where the returnees made an initial effort to begin the rebuilding of the walls and gates, an effort that was quickly and adamantly opposed by their pagan neighbors who wrote a letter to Artaxerxes accusing these Jews of sedition as evidenced now by their attempt to fortify the city walls. And so they were actually successful in halting the rebuild because we're told in Ezra 4, verse 17, that there's a letter sent out by King Artaxerxes, a letter ordering the work to cease. And so the walls remain in pieces, and what little was put up was quickly torn down. And so in all likelihood, Nehemiah was taken by surprise because he wasn't aware until now that the imperial policy to rebuild Jerusalem had been reversed by his own master, the king that he personally serves and protects. Now, at this point, he's compelled to say something. He recognizes a responsibility to leverage the influential position that God has put him in to be an advocate for God's people and for God's city. But he realizes this is going to be a big risk. He has to approach the king and ask him to reverse his own policy, to restart a building project that he personally shut down out of concern of seditious behavior, of potential treachery. So now, of course, his loyalties could very well be questioned. 
a mistrusted cupbearer is going to have to start you know, checking his own cup for poison. He's going to have to look out for his own life. But to Nehemiah, it was worth the risk. The presenting problem was urgent enough. Now, of course, that leads to the question of, of the urgency, and, and, and that's worth exploring. I mean, asking the question, well, why would the ruined walls and gates of Jerusalem present such an urgent and dire problem? Why would it move Nehemiah to take this big risk in approaching the king? Well, I mean, for practical reasons, city walls and gates are needed to, to, to prevent invasion. The remnant of the returnees, they would be vulnerable to any kind of attack without there being defensive walls. But, you know, beyond the practical, there is a psychological effect if Jerusalem remains exposed and wallless. Because it's going to serve as a constant reminder of their past shame in abandoning the Lord. Remember, it's their sin that invited this form of divine punishment that took place in the exile. So, so remaining in a ruined state would suggest that they must still be under divine wrath. And so in order for God's people to have a feeling sense of his mercy, to know that he truly is being good and gracious to us, he's being merciful to us, it's important to complete the rebuild of the city, to show that God is now showering mercy on us. But you know, even on a larger scale than that, until the city walls and gates are rebuilt, until Jerusalem is a proper city again, how can the people of God function as his earthly representatives? Remember how we said before that under the old covenant, the people of God were called to bless all the earth, to bless all the nations and families of the earth through a come and see approach. You come and you see for yourself how God blesses us and how you can be blessed as well. That was the strategy. The nations were to come to see Israel, to see what it looks like to live under God's blessing as you live according to God's law. And the clearest expression of all of that was to be manifested in and through the city of Jerusalem. The capital was called the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's described as the holy city, the set-apart city. It was supposed to be this beacon of God's light shining in the darkness for, for all the world to see and to draw in the world to this beacon of light. But all ancient cities had proper walls and gates. And so if the people of God are, are going to live out their calling, if Jerusalem is going to function and to fulfill its mission as a holy city, then it needs to be fully rebuilt into a proper city again. That's what's pressing Nehemiah. That's what's, what, what's, what's causing him to, to feel this, this burden to, to, to finish this building project. He was driven by a concern for their identity as God's covenant people and for their mission to represent him well on this earth. That's what's motivating him. And so the first thing Nehemiah did in response to the presenting problem was, was not to rush immediately into the presence of the king with his petition. No, it was to patiently go before the king of kings in persistent prayer. This 
moves us along to our second section, the presenting, the persistent prayer. Listen to verse 4 again. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah recognizes the importance of going to the highest authority first. Now, eventually, of course, he's going to have to approach his earthly boss. But what's more important is to first go to his heavenly Lord. And that's, my friends, a very good lesson for each of us. Because I think too often when dealing with our urgent problems, we're tempted to go directly to those we think have the power and authority to solve our problems. We don't have Nehemiah's instincts. We don't turn first to our highest authority, to the great and awesome King of heaven. Now verse 4 says he mourned and fasted and prayed for days before he approached the king. It doesn't say for how many days. Maybe a couple. Perhaps a week. Well, you know, actually, we don't have to speculate how long because in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, we're, we're told that he finally approached the king in the month of Nisan, which in those days would correspond to, in our calendar, the months of March and April. Now, recall... Verse 1 says that he heard this report earlier during the month of Chislev, which corresponds to November, December. So what we're talking about here is a four to five month period of praying and fasting before Nehemiah approaches the king with this particular request. And that's significant, friends. When you consider the fact that later on, if you read in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, it says that the entire rebuilding project for the city walls and gates took less than two months to complete. That means Nehemiah spent more time praying and fasting over the rebuild than the time it took to actually do it. That's so unlike us. We just give a a nominal amount of prayer to the beginning of a project. I mean, yeah, you know, of course, we, we we know better than to not pray at all. But how rare is it to spend far more time praying over a ministry effort compared to the actual time it takes to perform or to complete that ministry? It really goes to show exactly who we are depending on for success. And it's humbling. It's convicting. But the next question is, what motivated Nehemiah to persist in prayer for so long? What kept him going during that prolonged season of mourning and fasting and praying? Well, let's read, starting again in verse 5, and it tells us. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Notice with me how Nehemiah's confidence to persist in prayer is not not rooted in the fact of his persistence or in his devotion to the Lord or the eloquence of his prayer. No, he's asking God to pay attention, to, to let your ear be attentive, to 
to open your eyes, not because of anything that has to do with Nehemiah. No, his confidence in prayer has everything to do with the character of the God to whom he's praying. Oh, Lord, pay attention, because you're the kind of God who keeps covenant. You're the God who is utterly faithful to your covenant relationship that you establish with us. You are supremely loyal to your chosen people. That's what he's saying. And that's why, oh Lord, you keep showing steadfast love. You keep chesed. The Hebrew word chesed. It's so difficult to translate into English because there's really no good equivalent. You might see it translated in, in an English Bible uh, as God's mercy or his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his loyalty, his love. But none of those words by themselves capture the essence of chesed. The word essentially means really all of those things at once. And so the best attempts usually resort to a combination of words. You're going to see God's hesed translated as his steadfast love or his loyal love or his, his covenantal faithfulness. It's all directed, of course, towards his chosen people. So what fueled Nehemiah's prayers? What gave him the confidence to persist for five months in fasting and prayer? It's because he knew the God to whom he was praying. That this transcendent God who is high and mighty, who is great and awesome, is also gentle and lowly and utterly faithful to his chosen covenant people, keeping steadfast love. Knowing that about God is what kept him praying. You know, if you think about it, Nehemiah had so many reasons to give up praying. He experienced the trauma of the exile. He knows what spiritual abandonment feels like, and yet none of those things deterred him from praying. We, on the other hand, we give up far too easily. After experiencing a mere fraction of the disappointment and distress that Nehemiah went through, we just start turning to other people, other powers, other authorities for answers. When what we need to do is to turn back to the scriptures, to remind ourselves of the true nature and character of God, that's going to that's gonna bring us to our knees in prayer. And what it also leads is to a recognition of just our unworthiness before God. And it leads to a confession of our sinfulness. And it's the same thing for Nehemiah, which brings us to our third section, to the penitential prayer. Now, that's just another way of saying a prayer that expresses penitence, uh, a sorrow for sin. And that's what we see Nehemiah praying starting in verse 6. So listen again, verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Here it is. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
So you see, as Nehemiah is praying this this prayer of adoration in verse 5, exalting God for his greatness and for his steadfast love, he is now suddenly humbled by his own sinfulness and unworthiness, and he immediately offers up a prayer of confession. Adoration naturally leading to confession. And, And notice how he prays in the first person plural. He says, we have sinned against you. We have acted corruptly against you. He doesn't distance himself from the people of God. He doesn't doesn't point fingers at those guys. No, Nehemiah is more than willing to identify himself with the sins of his own community. He explicitly includes him and even his own household. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah, his family, the entire remnant of God's people have failed to keep the commandments, statutes, and rules that the Lord God delivered through Moses. The law. They failed to keep the law. Now, friends, on on one hand, we should be encouraged by all of this. We should be encouraged because the book of Nehemiah proves that Our failure to keep the law, our failure to keep God's commandments doesn't rule us out permanently. It doesn't disqualify us from experiencing a renovation in faith. But what we learn from this prayer is that confession is a precursor to any experience of renewal. Confession is a precursor to renewal. If you feel far from God, If if you've been living contrary to his commands, if you need a spiritual restoration and rebuild in your life, friends, don't imagine that it's just going to happen to you all all of a sudden out of nowhere. No, there's something that you can do. There's a way that you can respond right now. You can dismantle your pride. You can tear down your ego. You can confess your sins. And then your soul will be ready for God to come in to do a rebuild. This is why we make it a priority to confess our sins together as a church in our corporate worship. And why we encourage you to make confession a regular practice within your own devotional life. It's vital to the overall project of renovating your soul. And just like any good builder, God is not going to rebuild until you clear out the rubble first. Get all of that out of there. Get it, get it out of the way. So you know, it's, it's always the right time at any time to do an inspection of your own soul and to confess any known sins, to clear out the rubble. So I'm talking here, of course, about sins that, that you have committed personally. I'm also talking about even sins that stain your family or your community, that bleed onto you. Confess all of that. Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a promise found in Scripture. 1 John 1, 9. That's a promise you can bank on. That's a promise that, that we quite often bank on in the assurance of our pardon. It's the kind of biblical promise that really should be littered throughout your prayers to God. In other words, your your prayers should be filled with the promises of God, which of course leads us to our fourth and final section, the promise-based prayer.
prayer. Uh, look at verse 8 with me. And notice how Nehemiah is asking God to remember his own words, to remember his promises to his people. Look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, of course, he's asking God to remember his word, not because God needs a genuine reminder. It's not like he's at risk of forgetting something that he promised to his, to, to, to his people. No one needs to remind God of the covenants that he forged with his own chosen people. This, my friends, is just how godly saints pray. Godly saints are so saturated with God's word and so familiar with biblical promises that their prayers are naturally filled with those very promises. They're always referring to the promises of God because they're banking on God to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And what did God say he's going to do, especially when his people have been unfaithful and yet have now returned to him? Well, listen to verses 8 to 10. Remember the word that you have commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But, verse 9, if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now what Nehemiah is doing here is he's referencing Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 5, and that's where Moses essentially predicts the events that would eventually happen. He says there in Deuteronomy 30, one day the Lord God is going to drive his people from this land because of their unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry, but Moses also predicts that the God who scattered them is the same God who will gather them back to the place that he has chosen to make his name dwell. And of course, that chosen place is Jerusalem the holy city. So Nehemiah knows that promise. He knows Deuteronomy 30 very well. He knows the particular promises that God made there, and so he knows how relevant they are to his particular situation, and that's why they naturally fit in this prayer of his. This promise to regather and restore a scattered but penitent people, this promise is really what gave Nehemiah the confidence to believe that God is going to act. God is going to finish what he started. That's the emphasis in verse 10. It's basically saying, Lord, you've already redeemed us by your great power and strong hand. You've already done the heavy lifting. You've brought us out of exile. You have brought us back to Jerusalem. Please, now, Finish the job. Complete the rebuild. Grant me favor as I approach the king with this bold request to restart the effort to rebuild those walls. Oh, Lord, God, do this, please. And that's his immediate ask in verse 11, right? Give, he's verse 11, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's about to approach the king. And Nehemiah is able to approach the king with confidence because he's banking on the promises of the king of kings. And now 
he's ready to go. So what's the takeaway for us? What's the takeaway for, for our prayers? Well, this means, first of all, friends, we need an intimate knowledge of God's word. We need to be familiar with his promises. What has God committed himself to? What has the Lord obliged himself to do for his people? And once we figure those things out, why would we not appeal to those things in our prayers? I think it's the same problem when the vast majority of us, and be honest, the vast majority of us never read the fine print. I mean, maybe a few lawyers out there. You guys actually read the fine print and you're better off for it. Most of us, we just, we just skip past that and we just sign up. We just we sign our name, we date it, we're good. We sign up for, for services, whether this is you know, a cell phone company, this is you know, insurance that you're, you're, you're signing up for, whatever it is. We, we enter into contracts and agreements, we don't read the fine print. We just have this general idea of, you know, what we're signing up for, and we ignore the rest. And, and you know, of course, that means that we're probably going to be ignorant of certain obligations that are stipulated upon us to fulfill. That's a problem. But, you know, it's also very likely that we have no idea the kind of promises that that company or that service has obliged to keep that's going to benefit us. You know, if we have issues, if we have complaints, you know, we wouldn't even know the kinds of benefits and promises that we could appeal to because we never bothered to read the fine print. But if you did, did take the time to read it, to carefully study it, then I have no doubt that you would be appealing quite a bit to the fine print the next time you're on the phone with customer service, right? You'd be, you'd be quoting chapter and verse to that agent. Oh, no, it says here that you said that you're going to do this. Oh, please do this. Do this now. You're going to appeal to those promises. And so in the same way, if you never take the time to carefully read Scripture, if you ignore the fine print, then you wouldn't know the kinds of obligations that God has willingly bound himself to. You wouldn't be aware of the type of promises that you can boldly appeal to, which would leave your prayers bare and impotent. But on the other hand, if you're familiar with God's promises, well, then it makes perfect sense to pepper them throughout your prayers, to saturate your prayers with as many promises that you can, because that's what makes your prayers powerful. It's not you. It's not your words. It's God and his words, his promises found in Scripture. So consider modeling your prayers after Nehemiah's. I mean, he believed the God who scatters is the God who promised to gather the God who tears down is the God who promises to build us back up. The God who redeemed us by his great power and strong hand is the God who promises to restore us whenever we approach in repentance and faith. So friends, if you're feeling far from God, if, if you need a spiritual renovation to take place in your soul, you need to acknowledge, first of all, what Christ did to redeem you by his strong hand. Essentially, you, you need to remember that he was willing to be exiled so that you could be returned to God. He chose to be spiritually abandoned on the cross so that you, as God's chosen ones, would never be abandoned. That's what Christ did by his strong hand to redeem you. And so if Jesus is your redeemer, 
Well, then now you can bank on his promise to finish what he started in you. That's exactly what he promised in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus already started a good work of salvation in you, then in your prayers, friends, you should be appealing to this particular promise to bring it to completion, to finish what you started, O Lord, to finish the rebuild. Or listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. If you are his, if Jesus has saved you, he has redeemed you through his life and death, then he promises that he will save you, not just to a certain degree, not just to an acceptable amount. No, he will save you to the uttermost. He won't leave you partially done. He will finish the work in you. Bank on that. And let's do that right now as we go into prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this word to remind us that in your word are plenty of promises that we need to appeal to. We need to include within our prayers relying on you. And so I, I, I appeal now to Isaiah 55 verse 11 where you promise that your word, when it goes out, it shall not return to you empty, but your word shall accomplish that which you purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. We appeal to this promise, O oh Lord, that your word will do the work that you ordained to do within our hearts in this very moment. We pray this in Jesus' name.